Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. And here are the nominees for best performance by an actress in a leading role. Selma Hayek in Frida. Nicole Kidman in The Hours. Diane Lane in Unfaithful. Julianne Moore in Far From Heaven. And Renee Zellweger in Chicago. And the Oscar goes to, alrighty, by a nose, Nicole Kidman. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we're going to be talking about the 2003 ceremony year win for Nicole Kidman in a leading role. We've already previously done the episode with Catherine Zeta-Jones for uh, Chicago, so we're actually just finishing up. Uh, the year. Uh, so if you'd like to listen to that episode where our guest that week was with Robert Watson, it was a fantastic episode and I recommend giving it a listen. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about the lead actress. Um, so uh, today we are joined by a friend and a person I always love having on this podcast. Their comedy album went to number one on the comedy iTunes charts called I'm Your Number One Dad. She, uh, she is also a writer on This Hour Has 22 Minutes, which is part of CBC, as well as Son of a Critch, which I believe is also on CBC. It's Catherine Niker. Hi, Catherine. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me here once again. I just want people to know that, like, I actively ask Kyle to be on this. Yes. <laughs> and I'm so happy that you do because it's you and one other person that does. And I'm like, good because it's tricky uh, booking people for this because um, without going into details, I actually had to cancel one of my episodes because uh, the comic that I had booked who I won't mention, but I'll tell you after we're done mm. recording, uh, had to cancel because they were in New York and there were issues and yada yada. So I had to miss a release episode. Mm. Although the bonus of that is that now the listeners get um, two episodes uh, in one week. Amazing. Yeah. So that's good. I have a question mm -hmm. for you, though. So your album, your comedy album is called I'm Your Number One Dad. Yeah. Is that a misery reference? Like, I'm your number one fan. Oh, my is God. No. <laughs> so funny um no it's a it's a reference to um a joke that i have about wanting to be a dad instead of a mom okay like if i, I love... could pick i would pick dad hands yeah down. okay i list everybody listen you have to listen to this album um my favorite was the uh the foreskin people at pride and you had to walk <laughs> with them <laughs> That's yes, that's a very true story. I got to be in the pride parade pretty last minute. I was really stoked and I didn't know like who it was associated with. And it turned out mm -hmm. it was with these foreskin pride people. <laughs> and they gave me a t-shirt that says I heart my foreskin on it. And <laughs> I put that on and, and marched. It was wild. You're like, oh, did you did you get this at H&M or where, <laughs> yeah. where did you get the shirt? <laughs> That's really it's and I and you were just like, yeah. Or were you like, oh, my God, I mean, I wasn't going to walk away. Like once you're there, it's like, OK, well, I'm here now. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm my on God. The street. We're in line <laughs> to be in the parade. Like, I'm not going to leave now. 
Oh my god. And the I'm not pri- and I'm not like I'm anti foreskin. You know what I mean? It's not like Of course. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> not like uh, emphatically against it. <laughs> well, anybody listening, you just got to listen to that album and that's that was my favorite track cuz I just thought that was so ridiculous. Um Okay, so let's go ahead and just jump right into the 2003 ceremony uh, year. Be- mm-hmm. Before we do very quickly, Best Picture went to Chicago. Best Actor went to Adrian Brody for The Pianist. Uh, Best Supporting Actor went to Chris Cooper for Adaptation. Best Director went to Roman Polanski, Gross, for The Pianist. And Best Supporting Actress, as we have discussed in this episode already, went to Catherine Zeta-Jones for Chicago. So the first actress that I think well, let's just jump right in and we're going to talk about, again, these are in no particular order. This is just the order that I personally watch them in. Let's talk about Renee Zellweger in the movie Chicago. So um, a couple facts before we jump into the movie. Um, Charlize Theron was actually the original Roxy uh, when Nicholas uh, Hitner was the director. And then when Rob Marshall took over, he made Theron like audition for the role and then she lost it to Renee Zellweger. Whoa, and- I did not know that. I think it would have been a different movie with Charlize, right? Um, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I see that journey for her, but anyway. Uh, and then uh, this was Renee Zellweger's second nomination, uh, and her first was for Bridget Jones's Diary. There are so many facts about the movie Chicago. If you want to hear those facts, listen to the Catherine Zeta Jones episode. We go very much into it um, with with our guest Robert Watson. Um, but we're not really going to be covering that since we've already discussed it uh, before. But very quickly, what Chicago is about, two death row murderesses develop a fierce rivalry while competing for publicity, celebrity, and a sleazy lawyer's attention, uh, a.k.a. Richard Gere. So <laughs> had you seen this movie before, and what did you think about it, and what did you think about Renee Zellweger? Yes, I had seen this movie before, and I absolutely loved this movie uh, when I watched it before, and I actually very much enjoyed the rewatch of this movie. I think this movie really stands the test of time. Uh, You know, Renee Zellweger's performance aside, just technically, this film Mm -hmm. is beautiful to watch. Like, I I think the director, what's his name again? Rob? Uh, Marshall. Rob Marshall just phenomenal don't mm. you think like just like the the choice of colors the lighting the cinematography the editing it, it's a beautiful film and actually i saw this the chicago play um in london england like years later okay and it actually kind of the movie kind of ruined the play for me a bit because <laughs> the play is like what at least the way they did it it was just one set Mm-hmm. And essentially one costume for the entire cast right. the whole time. And it just didn't have like the movement that the movie Chicago does. Like I love how they, you know, expand outside of the world of the stage. Like I find a lot of movies that go from stage to screen have a hard mm-hmm. time, like really stepping outside of that box. But mm-hmm. this film really does that. And, and it's, it's really, it's a really fun watch. I am just going to disagree. <laughs> you hate it? <sighs> oh, okay. That's fine. I love this. Let's go. I listen. I have said this a million times. This I do not like musicals. I can't. Oh, okay. So it's really that it's a musical that you hate. Yes. Okay. But 
I am going to focus on the positives because I think that it's just like gross me talking no, about something I'm, that's so beloved I'm and being like, oh, you hating musicals. <laughs> you know, I like uh, I real quick. I think this is a really controversial opinion, but I hate Moulin Rouge. Oh God, I cannot stand that movie. I hate it. I think it's I so know. dumb. But people, I love think it's it so for overrated some, for some reason. Anyway, I know. Okay, that's cool. I okay. Well, we could let's we could just do a podcast about that. Um, <laughs> but talking about Chicago specifically, so and Renee, I'm gonna focus on the things that I did like about it. Um, okay, so from a technical perspective, the singing, the dancing, I mean, the bod, she looked so yeah. good, like she's ripped. She was absolutely nailing all of those parts. What I enjoyed about it was that her performance and her character, it's very um, campy, which obviously is like the tone and that is what the movie is supposed to be and that is what her performance is supposed to. I think that there's a part of the triple threat um, aspect that you really have to consider when you compare it to Nicole Kidman in The Hours, for example, who is bringing this tour de force, like technical, very Shakespearean type of high society type of acting, right? Because mm. it's a very different type of acting because she's singing, she's dancing, she's acting. Mm-hmm. I think that if it was just, just the acting, I would say it, I'd give her like a solid A minus. But then when you also consider the singing, the dancing and the singing and dancing while acting and dancing and singing, then I would give her a solid A plus. The thing is, is like she did win the Screen Actors Guild Award uh, for lead actress. I think there was a lot of confusion as to who would win this Oscar because Nicole Kidman was only in the hours for 28 minutes, which frankly is really more of a supporting role. Whatever. Yeah, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. But the thing is, is there are some really fantastic technical performance like skills that she clearly has. And I can completely understand the nomination because she absolutely nails it as Roxy. But my eyes are on Velma. I'm watching Catherine Zeta Jones. She's the, the femme fatale, the, or at least my idea of the femme fatale because she has the, like the jet black Bob. And for me, the star of the movie is really Velma. It's not, Roxy, but that's just kind of my take. Also, I cannot stand the music, but I do really like the Queen Latifah, like when you're good to mama. I like that. And that's pretty much that's pretty much the the things that I liked about this movie. Okay. I, I think all of this is completely fair. And and I will agree with you in that my eyes are also on Velma. I think that's the case with everyone, and I think that's why. Catherine Zeta-Jones is the one between the two of them that that won the Oscar. I will mm-hmm. say, too, I think the challenge as an actor in this role is truly in the physicality of it rather mm-hmm. than what you're bringing emotionally. Yes. So just like, I mean, that's also to your point, but just emphasizing that like this is a physically demanding role more than it is an emotionally demanding role, which is not what we're used to seeing in Oscar nominees. Um, so that also adds an interesting layer to it. I will say in terms of Renee Zellweger's acting, um, you know, like these are two highly problematic characters. Like, <laughs> like you know, Roxy Hart has committed murder and believes right. she should get away with it because mm-hmm. he didn't keep a promise. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot. I think she does this thing of, of, 
being this like uh, naive narcissist mm-hmm. really well. Like I, I in this campy setting, it's like she is this naive. Uh, yeah, I don't know how else to describe it. A naive narcissist, probably a psychopath. Oh, yeah. 100%. You know, like full on. But like you kind of believe her. Yeah. Right? Like you she believe. Sells it. Yeah, she sells it. Like you believe that she believes she should get away with this. And I love the way that Richard Gere and her, my favorite part of the whole movie is probably like the ventriloquist doll acting right. that they do. I think that was such a fun way of doing it. And she really does the physicality of the doll very, very well. Yeah, It's just Renee Zellweger is giving me exactly what I need. But again, my eyes are just on Velma and... Um, you're right. Like you actually weirdly have sympathetic sympathy for her, but it's interesting the way that the bad people in this movie are the ones that are kind of rewarded for that bad behavior. But the actual innocent, there was like that Polish woman or Czech woman yeah. or whatever, and she was actually innocent and then she gets killed. Yeah. And it's that it's just a way of showing the audience like this is kind of the world that we're living in where the corrupt people win. And um, I think that, that was like again, like really fun, but overall, like it's just I've seen this movie a few times now. I remember I watched this movie with my high school girlfriend. Uh, <laughs> you know. And I remember she was like, thank you so much for not pressuring me for sex. I'm like, no, thank you. But, <laughs> it, you know, it's just one of these things where, like, I just, I can't, I don't like musicals. And I'm sorry to anybody listening if you love this movie. It's just, like, it really doesn't do it for me. And Renee Zellweger is great. But it's just... Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, if you don't, I would never watch this again. If you don't, well, well, I'm glad I've closed this chapter for you. <laughs> I, I, you know, I feel like, look, if you don't like musicals, you don't like musicals. But I, okay, I wouldn't call myself a lover of musicals, but I do like them. And mm-hmm. I think out of all the movie musical adaptations, this is one of the greats. I'm not calling think- it the greatest, but I think it's it's up there on the list. Well, I mean, even the way that you're saying that whenever you were over in the UK and then you saw um, this musical and then it was just kind of low rent and you're like actually seeing the potential of what it could be in the film version. See, I I, I love that. Mm. And um, I think one of my favorite, I think my favorite line in this movie is whenever she says, you know what? She's like, I hate you. And then she's like, well, there's only one business in the world where that's no problem at all. And I'm like, two, if you can't stand up comedy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which also John C. Riley in this movie is such a cuckold. Oh my God. Major. <laughs> Major. Big year for John C. Riley. Yeah, he I was think nominated this was his for big this. Break. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, overall, um, I do root for her. And she does make the character sympathetic. I think that's a credit to Renee Zellweger's skills. Mm-hmm. I think that where she really shines is like when she's on the bench in the courtroom. And again, for me, it's the ventriloquist scene. I love the way that Richard Gere is like manipulating her and then she's yeah. manipulating the public. Those are really nice moments. Again, the the dancing and the singing, of course. But for me, the star of the show is Catherine Zeta-Jones as Velma. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. But I will say like how you were saying earlier about Charlize Theron, like, you know, she wouldn't have had that like innocence in her eyes, mm-hmm. like in that ventriloquist sequence and in all the other things like, oh, but what about me? Like, shouldn't I shouldn't I be free? Like, I feel like 
if it were Charlize, there would be like a coldness to to Roxy. It's interesting because I in a way that would make it less sympathetic. Because I mean, if you think about like, uh, oh god, what was that movie? North Country. And then also monster. And she fits in those roles so well because she does have that sort of coldness Mm -hmm. in her eyes and it works for the character. And I think you're absolutely right because I think that um, the role of Velma really, or or sorry, uh, of Roxy really did require a sort of innocence that you're right. I don't think uh, that, that, uh, oh my God, I'm like having a a stroke right now. Charlize Theron would have been able to bring to the role. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, do you have anything else that you would like to add specifically to Renee Zellweger's performance before we move on? Uh, no, I'm good. Okay, so let's talk about, oh my god, I am so excited to talk about this one, girl. Okay, <laughs> let us talk about Diane Lane in Unfaithful. Oh gosh, yeah. Let it be known that the first time I ever watched this movie was when it came out with my grandmother. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly a family-friendly movie. Um, I remember there was that scene where she's like fingering herself in the chair and he's watching, which as an adult, I'm like, oh, that's really hot. But as a child, I'm like, oh, does she, is she itchy? Does she, what is she doing? (laughs) Um, Okay. So a couple of facts about this movie. Um, The character that Diane Lane is playing uh, in this movie is supposed to be considerably considerably older than the man that she's having the affair with, but in real life she's only one year older than him. Which no way. I, they always did that in like nineties things. Only one year. I only one year, and they always did this like in nineties and two thousand film where they were like, "Oh, this is a fifty year old parent," but they're like in their thirties, and they're like, "This is a seventeen year old," and they were like in their thirties, and you're like, "Why?" Yeah. Okay. Um. So there's that. Also, Brad Pitt and Ryan Philippe were offered the roles of uh, Paul. I believe Paul was... Yes, Paul is the man that... The French guy that she has oh, the affair Ryan with. Ryan Philippe could have done that role. I think so, too. But anyway. I think... I also feel like Brad Pitt, if he was the guy, also could have done it and brought some, like, maybe Oscar potential to sure, that. But yeah. anyway. So... This role that Diane Lane landed, so it was Meg Ryan who was the original choice. Then Alyssa Milano from Charmed was cast, but she couldn't do it because of conflict with the Charmed uh, shooting schedule. Then it was Jodie Foster, then Kristen Davis, then Portia de Rossi, then Kira Sedgwick, then Brooke Shields, then Hilary Swank, then Heather Graham, then Uma Thurman, and then Kate Winslet. And then it went to... Jennifer Lopez, and then she turned it down, and then Diane Lane finally got it, and then when Diane Lane was nominated for an Oscar, Jennifer Lopez was apparently, like, really fucking pissed, which, fair enough. (laughs) Well, and according Um, to this recent documentary she has out, she was also uh, upset about not being nominated for Hustlers. Is that the movie she did? I which fair enough because she was nominated for both the BAFTA and the Golden Globe, so I think she was expecting it. Yeah. Anyway, but they won't they won't ever nominate her, and they won't ever nominate um, Jennifer Aniston because she tried to do it for the movie Cake, and that was probably her best shot. And they were just like, no. Um, but very quickly, very quick synopsis of Unfaithful. I mean, not that it's like a groundbreaking plot, but a New York <laughs> suburban couple's marriage goes dangerously awry when wife when the wife begins. Uh, uh, when the wife indulges in an adulterous fling. Um, so it's 
very Connecticut. And then she goes into New York City. She There's like a wind... Like it's like a thousand Beyonce fans going off at once. But it is <laughs> this like this windstorm is comical. I know it's it is supposed to be comical. The, this so-called <laughs> windstorm that happens at the beginning of the movie. I know it's so stupid. It's such a trope. Like the winds of change. Yeah, well, it's, it's like it's, ooh. it's Shakespearean. Like that's like um, what's it called? Like pathetic fallacy or something? Like the idea mm-hmm. that the weather reflects the mood. That Always, you, that it's in. storming. Oh, it must be yeah, trouble yeah. Like, is brewing. That's a, that's a Shakespeare tactic, of course. But and also in this film, it's like, like let's be real. Let's. How long ago was Shakespeare? I mean, it's right. Like, can we right. be a little more original? Anyway, this windstorm is so funny. It's like, oh, like I'm walking and I'm in heels and I'm confused. Like it's really, it's a lot. I know. And then, yeah, it's like this hysterical performance, like, oh, oh, like, and then she drops her bags and then Paul comes and saves her. And yeah, then like they it's bump this- into each other. Yeah. And this movie, by the way, has very, very mixed reviews. And one of the most common reviews of this film is, why does everybody hate this movie? Like, people either love it or they hate it. I am on the love train. Oh, okay. um, and listen, it like is it's very scandalous in like a 2002 kind of way. And <laughs> it's very scandalous in a very ooh, 2002 kind of way. In a, a 2002 way. kind of way. And I, I just love the way that Diane Lane's character always has like the sexy trench coat look where she has the bare leg with like the black dress and she's just carrying herself in this sexy I'm having an affair fashion and it's just so tastefully done and it's like I remember like because like Daniel and I are in an open relationship but I when we were monogamous like I definitely like had like fantasies about like having an affair in a sexy scandalous way and I just think that this is just very tastefully done and I really appreciate that Diane Lane fucking went there like she like we're seeing everything like the you know like oh yeah like tell me that you want me to fuck me and she's like oh my god fuck me like I can't imagine how awkward that would be as an actor to have to do a closed set scene like that. Like, ugh. but I believe it. It's so real. You know, we've all had those passionate sort of like, oh, we shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. And anyway, it's just it got me hot and bothered in all the right places. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely a sexy film, although Mm -hmm. sometimes I was like, this is a little uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> like it isn't super sexy the whole time. Yeah. Like but I just when we watched um what was it little little children? Was that what it was called? With oh god, yeah. And we were like, okay, yeah. this film is hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, on the on the washing machine. Oh yeah, I think about that. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> like that film is hot. Or this one, I'm like, it is hot, but there's moments where it's like, is this hot? I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but that's fine. Um, Yeah. Okay. I will say this. I think Diane Lane is great in this role and in this performance, but Mm. I don't think it's a great movie. Oh God. It's so stupid. I mean, it's so like, 
Yeah, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, but I mean, it's just so basic. Like, it's just like, I'm having an affair, and then my husband finds out, and then he uses the symbol of, like, her family, aka the snow globe, to kill him, and then, ooh, they have to cover it up. It does actually kind of get a little bit more interesting whenever he's trying to get away with murder, which they eventually do. Also, a really funny trope at the end, whenever the light was green, but they couldn't move forward. I'm like, oh, God. Oh, I know. (laughs) But I, I, I... Everything that you're about to say, I totally, I totally get why you're going to say it. But I'm just saying that this movie made my middle, my middle-aged mom, my inner middle-aged mom very wet. And she was very happy. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a sexy film. It's not a good film. It's really like, I don't know. It's so basic. Like. A pumpkin spice latte is a million times more interesting than this film. And actually, you like, you know what? I, I think where this movie kind of makes a mistake is it it almost starts too early. Where mm-hmm. I feel like like them getting away with murder is so much more interesting than the affair. Mm. That it's like, right. why isn't that what the movie's about? You're right, but and then we could have had flashbacks to the sexy scenes and her um, immense amount of guilt because in this film, uh, again, shout out Richard Gere, also having a pretty solid year. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, he accidentally kills the man that she's having an affair with, so she feels so guilty for hurting her husband, but also for getting you know for this guy being killed, like. That is a journey that we mm-hmm. don't really get to go on because they were so focused on the affair itself. And it's just feel as a storyteller, that just feels so silly to me. I think you're right. And like, I complete, I do agree with you, but like, I could actually have used some more sexy time. Like, I was just. <laughs> I know I'm not I, this against movie- it. That's why I said that's why I threw in flashbacks, Kyle. Okay. That's why I threw in <laughs> flashbacks. Because I think we could see their marriage. Like now they're forced in this marriage because they're holding on to this lie. Yeah. But maybe she doesn't have the passion for him that she once did, and she's still thinking about him even though he's dead. Like that is so interesting to me. I mean, I think because I mean, this movie got singled out for the acting, which makes sense because there are a lot of inner conflicts that her character is going through. Like whenever she's coming back on the train, um, you see the range of uh, emotions that she's going through where it's like guilt, shame, I think maybe a little bit of pride, exactly a little bit of pride. and, And then she goes into the bathroom to do something that's her business. (laughs) And, you know, and again, I love that you see that realness of it. And uh, I really just think that um, another another amazing moment is whenever the the uh, the cops come to the house and and they interrogate her and uh, Richard Gere. And you can see that she has this kind of conflict where she can't react too much, because if she reacts too much, then her husband would become suspicious because she is like, well, I don't know who this person is, but I mean, clearly. And but I, again, I think, isn't that so much more interesting? <laughs> yes, absolutely. You're right. If it would have been done in flashbacks, maybe this movie would have been nominated more uh, than just the acting. But I think that Diane Lane is just shining in this role. And it's just this really classy, sexy affair and gave me everything that I wanted. Yeah, she is great in the role. I think it's just, 
it's one of those things where the movie the rest of the movie kind of hurts it (laughs) (laughs) i i I just i don't know she is very sexy she is very convincing in all her emotions um again like she could have been given more that that's really my overall critique is just she could have been given so much more Okay, fine. So to that point, saying that she could have been given so much more, the one thing that I didn't buy was she seemed like she was in a very happy relationship. Thank you. Okay, yes. This is what I want to talk about. I was afraid to kind of go there because I'm like, I I have been in some but not very long-term relationships. Their mm-hmm. marriage is like happy and good yeah. and still Perfect. sexually active mm-hmm. that I don't know why she would be willing to blow up her life like this i mean it just seems like oh like he's just so tempting he's just that tempting he's that good looking he's that sexy but like realistically Mm -hmm. people don't just blow up their lives like that like especially when things are good i mean unless there was like you know maybe some maybe she just had like self-sabotaging like tendencies but i would have liked to have seen that more Exactly. If that would have been explored more, I think that it would have been a more interesting movie. If they would have explored more the trying to get away with murder, that would have been a more interesting movie. I definitely see now having this conversation why maybe the reviews for this movie were so mixed because there were some things where on paper everything like seemed way more uh, happy and it was confusing why she would risk everything like that. But then it could also just simply be he was just really hot and she was just tempted by oh maybe i could get caught and it was just this tempting thing to do like i don't know also now that we people are like polyamorous these days you know i'm in an open relationship monogamy is um not like old-fashioned it's still very much like a heteronormative thing but for me as like an lgbtq person who is in an open relationship watching her just walk into some dude's house and fucking him it's like that's familiar territory for me (laughs) you know so i don't necessarily question it that much but again i can understand why like an average movie viewer uh who might not have the same sort of lifestyle as i do would question like well i think it's more the character Right. Mm -hmm. Like this is a suburban mom who's been married for 11 years and is in a a monogamous relationship. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, why it's more like, okay, for that character to step outside of their marriage, it would have been nice to see some more, um, again, some more motivation or some more like evidence of of self-sabotaging tendencies or something like that like it really kind of seems out of nowhere and her life is just too great and and perfect and it's just like why you're right like we don't feel sorry for the rich white woman from Connecticut (laughs) like yeah yeah I I know yeah I know what you mean but like my only critique of this performance on Diane Lane's part, because I mean, obviously this is a story thing and a direction and stuff like that, because mostly to the things that we're discussing. But the one character choice that I thought was like a little, hmm, was whenever like she breaks up with him on the answering machine and then Richard Gere is like covering up the body and the murder and cleaning up the mm-hmm. apartment and stuff like that. The next or that evening and the next day, Diane Lane was totally chill. Like she was not upset. She was not because the whole up until that moment, she was like so melancholic. She was so miserable. And then like after she broke up with him, she was like, "Okay, like easy breezy. Like we're good. I'm fine. Like I'm happy now. Like let's go for brunch. Like it was there was no like 
emotional journey of her, her finally giving him up. And I wish we saw a little bit more of that. And I just didn't like how chill she was. Um, it really wasn't until there was that reveal of the snow globe that was returned that he used as the murder weapon. Then <gasps> she knows. I and love then... it. You just said reveal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is RuPaul's Drag Race recap. Of course. It, I, I'm obsessed with reveal yourself. <laughs> you know, and so there were just little tiny things here and there that I was like, okay, but overall... This is easily my favorite Diane Lane uh, film performance. Wow. I love that she went there and I love how like scandalous and oh no, we shouldn't it was. And I also just think for nostalgia safe, it's so funny that this I watched this movie with my grandmother. <laughs> um Okay, I'm going to agree with your critique on the acting, and I'm actually going to double down on this, although this could have been like a writing or directing choice and not necessarily on Diane Lane herself, but mm -hmm. um, not much of a grieving process either mm -hmm. when she finds out he he's died. I know. She, like, obviously, about... so she kind of has to fake it in front of the cops initially, but even mm -hmm. after they go, you think she would like crumble or something. Right. I or like excuse could, yeah. herself and like try to like have a moment by herself in the bathroom or something to let it all out. And, and that never happens. And so that that's also a bit odd, but maybe that's not on her. And that's the thing is that you're like, is it the director? Is it the script? Like, I know exactly what you mean. And there were a few things in there. You're like, OK, this could have been an incredible maybe best picture nominee moment, but like, there's just so many like, why is this happening moments that it kind of hurt it. So I can understand why Diane Lane's acting performance was the only thing that was singled out. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. Well, do you have anything else that you would like to add before we move on? Uh, just one uh, complaint about the movie, if I may, just real quick. <laughs> uh, they, when they discover this body, uh, it's a real there's a i mean i guess this movie is pre a csi but i was like come on this guy has not covered his tracks right enough to not be caught like the fact that they get away with it is just so easy and convenient that it kind of like i don't know it kind of dampered the the thing for me a bit Oh, I mean, like he was pouring blood down the drain, like buckets of blood down the drain. His I'm like, oh my God. are everywhere. Everywhere. In the apartment. His fingerprints are literally everywhere. Also, they would be all over the body, all over like the rug that he tried to roll him up in. There's no way he's carrying that dead body alone. Um, he walked outside with it and the guy was like, you need a hand. Yeah, and he fully is... walked outside with it. And I, and I don't know if I've been, if you've ever just like rolled up a carpet. Like I've rolled up yeah. a carpet without a body in it. And it's a lot. It's really smooth. You know, yeah, it, <laughs> it rolls up nicely. They're like, oh, this is the new reusable bag from J. Crew. Uh, I'm just look, going. It looks like a body in a carpet. It's I know. It's so stupid. <laughs> it's so oh. Brutal. Anyway, that's oh all. Oh, my God. That's all. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about, oh my God, I'm so excited. This was a good year, actually. This was a pretty good year. Okay. Let's talk about Julianne Moore in Far From Heaven. So, 
So very quick, a couple of facts about this movie. So um, Edward Lackman uh, created the 1950s look uh, the by using incandescent lighting techniques um, as that would have been used in a 1950s era melodrama. So he was trying to um, sort of mirror that style. Mm -hmm. And uh, Frank, uh, who is played by Dennis Quaid, uh, was actually written for James Gandolfini. And the I know, that's what I was like, what? Um, But didn't he play a gay guy with that Julia Roberts, Brad Pitt movie, like, the Mexican? Was that the movie? I don't know. Or the tourist or the Mexican tour. I can't remember what it was called. But anyway, uh, it would have been interesting to see James Gandolfini uh, in this role. Okay. So, yeah, he would uh, have been incredible in this role, actually. I think so, too. Yeah, he. it would have been very interesting. But very, very quickly, um, Far From Heaven in 1950s Connecticut, a flustered housewife faces a um, marital crisis and mounting racial tensions in the outside world. And the marital crisis that she's facing is that Frank, her husband, played by Dennis Quaid, is uh, a big old queen. What a perfect uh, week to be talking about these movies, uh, because it's Pride Week in Toronto. <laughs> um, so we have a 1950s, you know, gay love affair. Uh, you have sort of an interracial uh, re- possible relationship that doesn't end up happening um, that she has with um, Dennis Haysbert, who played Raymond. Uh, and it's a very... Yes, and it's a very controversial relationship because in the 1950s, obviously, it was illegal for a, a white person and a black person to be in a relationship. Uh, or, yeah, especially in America. And, um, okay, so first of all, I am obsessed with Julianne Moore in this movie for just that, like, oh, Frank, get that dick out of your mouth and give me a kiss. Like, just... <laughs> That's sort of like just so calm and everything's in a whisper and hello, how are you? Like that sort of Stepford wife kind of thing that Uh she has going on. I love, she plays it very, very well. And uh, this, by the way, the neighborhood where this movie takes place is literally where Karen was invented. Like it is the (laughs) the Stepford wife neighborhood. And um, I just... In this time period, um, I was watching this really interesting Pride documentary where they were talking about how in this time period, LGBTQ people, it they were actually happy. It was just that you didn't talk about it. Back in the day, it was like, you know, therapy and talking about your feelings and stuff. That was a sign of weakness. So it's like you never talked about it. There were people that had like, um, you know, gay partners And they were very happy. They had gay communities, but no one ever talked about it. Everybody just assumes that like pre-1970s, it's like gay people were always just like sad and miserable. And they probably were, but they weren't as sad and miserable as people think. It really wasn't until um, gay liberation happened after Stonewall and, um, you know, obviously like the 1980s and the AIDS crisis and all the fights that they fought for in the 1970s and the feminist movement and blah, 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 blah. But the point is, is that like during this time period, there actually were happy gay people, but we just didn't know about it because during this time, you just didn't talk about that kind of thing. It was just very secretive. Um, But obviously Julianne Moore is married to uh, Dennis Quaid, who plays Frank in this movie. And then she walks in on him in his office, like making out with some guy. And um, it puts a huge strain on their relationship. This is a very common thing. I remember growing up, um, I had, you know, hearing of kids that I went to school with, his parents getting divorced because one of the parents had come out um, 
so during the 1950s, I can only imagine like how much more dramatic and how confusing because, you know, at that time in history, you were very much told like you get married, you have kids and you go to church and this is just how it is. And there's no room for, you know, any other options. Right. And um, I think Julianne Moore is the choice for this movie. Uh, I loved her in it. And I loved all of the supporting uh, characters. Also, Viola Davis is in this movie. Um, okay, so have you seen this movie before? And what did you think about Julianne Moore? Okay, so I I feel like we're going to have to... I'm going to go on a journey with this one. Okay. <laughs> so I had seen this movie before. I actually, this is the first time I've seen all these movies before. Um, okay. So I, I've seen this movie before. And I think, like, it's hard for me not to be biased because I feel like I've seen other things about this era in time since then that I feel are just so much better than this movie, but they all came out after this came out. So right. I feel like I have this biased lens that isn't entirely fair. Um, and what I'm referencing is like revolutionary road and just the show Mad Men. I think are just inherently better portrayals of a similar story, but um I think, or not a similar story, but of a similar character. Let's put it that way. I, mm. I think Julianne Moore is okay. We might debate this. I, I, she, she is, she is good in the role, but I also feel it's a little two dimensional, in that I feel like it, it, you know, she's trying so hard to be perfect, and everything around her is kind of going wrong. And you don't see it, you don't see it crack in her ever. And I just think it's like, I don't know, like she has this like naive, righteous view of the world, but it, she knows that things can only, you know, be a certain way in this era and time. And instead of being like, you know, almost becoming like an advocate or anything like that, I don't know. She just really stays the same. And I feel like everything she goes through should be a, a bigger journey than it is. But maybe that's more writing than it is her performance. But don't you think, though, that like that was just sort of how she was supposed to be because that's how women that the, was women's roles at that time in history? Or is like, don't make a fuss, don't make a scene. Yeah, but she's like, at, like, yes, yes. But also, you know, she's actively rebelling against those roles. And then, That's and then true. not rebelling. And then it's like, and, and who, and she just, it's almost like her whole face doesn't even change. I think though, then you kind of, I think there were certainly subtleties that could possibly challenge that. Like I know, mm -hmm. like whenever, like she, whenever um, Frank like hits her accidentally and then she's trying to cover it up with her bangs and then. Yes. Yeah. That was uh, a really good scene. And then, uh, um, uh, her friend Patricia, what's her face, comes over and she's like, you know, trying to be the supportive friend. And she's like, you can call me, um, you know, any day or, or, or night. And uh, then she calls out to her while she's leaving. And, you know, she wants to say something, but then she can't and she doesn't. It's like during this time period, people were just so repressed. And so I feel like you see in her character that she does want to. I mean, I, I guess her idea of rebelling is like maybe acknowledging it, but not discussing it. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I guess I know what you're saying. Um, but I do think though that like 
there's something very like campy about the performance as well. <laughs> like almost like you could see like a drag queen playing this role. Like just that's amazing. Just just the way that like somebody would say something far from heaven like, starring Jinx Monsoon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I totally could see that. But it would just be like somebody at like the house party would just say something blatantly racist. And she'd be like, oh, stop. Let me freshen those drinks for you. Like it just it, it was just comedy to me at one point. Like I was and like, she never oh freshens the drinks. I know. She never freshens the drinks. <laughs> Uh, okay, I okay, let me let me do this. So in the hours, which is a movie we're gonna talk about, um, she plays almost an identical character. Mm. And she was nominated for both, right? I think this is a good year for, for Yeah, Julia she was Moore. nominated for both. One of the few times it's ever happened in supporting actress and lead actress. Right. And her character in the hours has so much more range to it, even though they're almost the same person. Don't you think? Same time period. Um, I don't know. I find that in the hours, she's definitely more beaten down emotionally. And you can tell that she's like carrying the weight of her depression and thoughts of suicide in the character very well. Where I find in this, she seems more upbeat. And her performance, like you're saying, where you were like, it's a little too two dimensional. I had written that this performance seems kind of one note, but I think that's the point of the film right. where it's like, um, what was that movie with Reese Witherspoon where everything was like in black and white and then they start seeing things in color. It's just sort of like oh. she has this idea of like what her world is supposed to be. And then she has to navigate these challenging things that are happening in her world while still maintaining the role of being like a Stepford wife in Connecticut during the 1950s. Yeah. So she didn't really have a lot of options. And I think that the way that she handles it, like whenever uh, Frank is like, I've fallen in love and I finally know what that feeling is like. I'm not trying to say that to... I know. I was like, oof. And then just the way that she's just so stone-faced and she's no longer prim and, oh, of course, Frank. Like, she was just like, so I guess that you'll be wanting a divorce. And then she kind of just, like, walks out of the room. I feel like that's her yelling, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think, okay, I I don't disagree with what you're saying. And maybe it's just, like, a personal preference thing. But sort of, okay, similar to my critique of Unfaithful, that is so much more interesting than so much of the rest of the movie mm-hmm. it's like the end when her husband is leaving her and this man that she you know had a friendship with they don't have anything physical but it's clear that they have an attraction to one another um is moving to a new town and she has to kind of like navigate her life on her own as a divorced woman of that era mm-hmm. I like to me I'm like the mo- this movie ends and I'm like wait that's the movie I want to watch. Right. You, yeah. you know what I mean? Not that like the the setup and everything that leads up to that isn't important, but cuz it is very important, but at the same time I'm like this journey is just starting. Well, and then Raymond at the end, her only friend, <laughs> leaves. <laughs> and then it's just like it everything this poor woman like just everything um is just awful and sad and depressing and it's just a very sad ending and i guess that's why it's called far from heaven and 
it's a lot of these movies were downers for sure. Um, yeah, and I guess it was more like revolutionary for its time, like in 2002. I don't know how many stories were told about a character like this before this movie. Right. But again, I just have this bias lens where I've just seen other things about this time period that I feel have more depth to it than this film. Fair enough. Okay. Well, just for time's sake, I think yeah. that we're we're just gonna move on. Um, but let us talk about uh, Salma Hayek in the movie Frida. And uh, very quickly, just a couple of facts about this movie. So Frida Kahlo's niece was actually so impressed with Salma Hayek and the performance that she gave that uh, her niece actually gave her one of Frida Kahlo's necklaces. Um, ha- Salma Hayek actually sued Harvey Weinstein during this production because. Uh, he threatened to replace her with another actress, but she actually bought, brought the project to him with an agreement that she would both produce and star in the film. Harvey Weinstein threatened to shut down production unless she did a nude scene with another woman. She had a nervous breakdown because she felt so forced into it by Weinstein because she also was refusing his many sexual advances during production. She felt like she had no choice. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Harvey Weinstein during this film, whenever all of the um, the Me Too movement and whenever Harvey Weinstein was being canceled and everything like that, going to jail and everything, uh, Selma Hayek was was one of the most vocal um, victims uh, during that time. And it was because of this film. Now, we're not really that's a different podcast. I just yeah. thought it was worth mentioning. Um, but Selma Hayek, uh, the, I mean, what do, what do you say about this movie? It's basically like a biopic of um, the iconic uh, Mexican artist uh, Frida Kahlo. Um, so I have never, I had never seen this movie before. I have a degree in illustration. It's a, it's a form of visual art. Mm. And just aesthetically speaking, the visuals in this movie were just giving me everything mm-hmm. that I needed. Mm-hmm. I loved the cinematography. I, I think it was paced very well. And I think that it was done in a, the way that they would do certain scenes uh, and to show you where her character was at emotionally, um, they would do it in sort of like an artistic way, sometimes with puppets and things like that. I just thought it was very Frida Kahlo-esque, and I I really appreciated that a lot. Um, specifically to Salma Hayek and um, her co-star, uh, Alfred Molina, who played uh, the famous artist Diego Rivera, mm-hmm. they were married. And their marriage and their open marriage and Selma Hayek's like bisexuality. And I think that this movie was done very well in terms of both pacing and um, the way that they kind of uh, just showed her whole life, essentially. My only complaint about this movie is, I'm sorry, but Selma Hayek's character, that bitch did not age a day through the entire movie. (laughs) Her wig just kept changing. Like, that was the only thing that changed in the entire film. But otherwise, you know, because Alfred Molina... That's also a Harvey Weinstein thing, because he complained that Frida was too ugly. Oh, yeah, he didn't want the unibrow. It's like, bitch, that's her whole iconic look. You can't play yeah. Rita without the unibrow. It's ridiculous. Um, I think that Salma Hayek, she just carries this picture with a, a such an effortlessness. And, um, you know, I, I think that she was the right choice for this. I don't really know. the my Like, this is just this is just a personal thing. Um, I really enjoyed this movie. I enjoyed her in this movie. I totally understand the nomination. She was also nominated for a BAFTA and a Golden Globe and all that. Mm. But I just... 
I don't really know if there was necessarily like an Oscar moment. Oh, interesting. But I I think that she just carries the picture so effortlessly. And she just was Frida Kahlo to me. Like it was very, very well done. Very tasteful. Really enjoyed it. So had you seen this movie before? And what did you think about Salma Hayek in in this role? I I saw this movie when it came out. And... And then recently was me watching it, you know, again for the first time in like, you know, 20 years, I guess. Um, I think it's great. I think this is a great biopic. It's extremely well done. Um, I think my the only critiques I have of this movie are incredibly minor. In terms of her Oscar moment, that's so interesting. What would be her one oscar moment i mean the first thing that came to mind was when she has the miscarriage and then she's lying mm. in bed and she's painting after the fact that was pretty they, that was pretty powerful i mean i think they used whenever she's with the kids and then she walks in and then diego is having sex with her sister oh, yeah and then after when she doesn't let him back in when remember when yeah. he's knocking yeah that's a cute that's an oscar moment yeah, I, I think that's so. I think that's what they used for her for her clip because I remember watching it and being like, oh, I should watch this movie because <laughs> it seems interesting. Oh, positive. Okay, super positive note here. Here we go. Yeah. I talk about this trope in on this podcast before. If you've listened to it, I talk about there's always this scene in these movies where the leading ladies will give themselves like a gas station bathroom haircut, <laughs> and then they they leave with like beautiful highlights and layers and it looks amazing and it's like do not send that message out hollywood because it inspires us to cut our own hair and you should never do that because it doesn't look like that it never looks like that and one thing that i love is that at one point frida kahlo gives herself a let's call it a gas station bathroom haircut and she looks fucking insane she looks like we should be hiding the scissors she looks crazy and i'm like Thank you. That is what that is what happens when you cut your own hair. That is what it should look like. And I just appreciated the honesty and the truth of that. Mm-hmm. Also, <laughs> For the, once. that famous painting of her with like the hair yes. on the ground. And then the way they like animated that painting. Do you remember? Oh, I love it. I loved, I that loved it so much that I was almost mad that the movie didn't do that more. Mm-hmm. Didn't because mm-hmm. I felt it was so effective the way they I brought didn't... her her painting to life in that one moment that I wish they had done that throughout the movie. They kind of do towards the end when you're seeing like a bit of a collage of of paintings, mm-hmm. like you see the dress hanging out the window in New York City, and then you see the painting afterwards. But like I don't know, there's something about the way they brought that one painting to life that I'm like. I wish I saw more of that because she did tell her life story through her painting. So I I wouldn't have minded an even more literal mirroring of that. I think so too. Also, I do really enjoy the relationship that she has with the ex-wife. Yeah. Um, I think that that was because they hate each other. And then she's like, first of all, why was she invited to the wedding? Yeah. So whatever she like. That was insane. Maybe she and then wasn't the- invited. I was like, I wonder if she crashed the wedding. Oh, maybe. But everybody in this story is so charismatic and fiery mm-hmm. and unconventional and artists, right? And I just, as an artist, really appreciated that. I also didn't realize that Frida Kahlo was so political. I didn't realize like how many relationships that she had had with so many people and how revolutionary she was. And I didn't. 
I didn't realize that part of her yeah, of her life. So it's just, I just really, really love this movie, and I love Salma Hayek in it. And it was such a fun journey watching her from beginning to end. Of course, my only critique is just that she did not age a day. But as you're saying, very likely because of the Harvey Weinstein. Um, yeah, but yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, but I mean, but you know, overall, I really love this movie. I love this performance. But to me, I don't really know if I have like specific moments that I can be like that. That was the scene. That was. It's more of an overall. Mm-hmm performance I would say I I really enjoyed yeah that's fair I mean this is a movie where you know even though it is a Weinstein film he really ruined its potential and there were see there was moments in the movie where like they just use like photos to be like hey we're in a new location now and sometimes I was like did this Mm -hmm. movie just run out of money yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like there were some moments in the film where I'm like, they just straight up ran out of money, didn't they? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, I think it's actually considering, it, and I actually reread uh, some of Hike's op-ed uh, in the New York Times just to be like knowledgeable for recording this podcast and, and rereading it. I'm like, I can't believe this film got made. Like, it it is such a testament to her that this film even got made after everything she went through. I I won't go into all of it, but I I highly recommend reading it. It's a really, she wrote it herself. It's a really good read, um, but also extremely heartbreaking because it's like, I can't believe you had to go through all of this. The fact that she ended up with an Oscar nomination at the end of this i think is incredible and and really i mean it's probably for another podcast like we said before but when you look at her career she doesn't really get these kinds of roles again and mm-hmm. that might have been in part what happened between her and miramax but also mm. i think it's a racism thing i think the yes. roles just were not available for selma and i think this is one of you know the few moments where we where we really got to see her her potential as an actress and her struggle to be taken seriously is a uh, is a real one. I mean, go- oh. going back to the film before, you're like, oh yeah, Viola Davis is in this movie. As I was watching Far From Heaven, I was like, oh my god, how many times did Viola Davis have to play a maid? Like this that's, is so brutal. I that's exactly what I thought as well. <laughs> I was like, oh no, she's like a Juilliard trained actress. I know. And she's she's playing a maid. I know. But it's so interesting that you say that because um, that was what I thought about when I found out that Sama Hayek was nominated for an Oscar. This was recent. Mm. This was maybe like two or three years ago. I was like, what? Sama Hayek's an Oscar nominee? Because when I think of Selma Hayek, I think Spy Kids 3, game over. <laughs> <laughs> I think Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think about these just ridiculous... Yeah, movie. Desperado, stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's how I know Salma Hayek. And then you see this, and then you're like, oh, wow. Like, she's amazing. She's an incredible actor. And then she's, like, popping up now in more prestige films. Like, she was just in House of Gucci, for example. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, because, like, diversity is so important now that people are like, oh, my God, we, we're maybe being a little racist with our casting. It's like, maybe. Um, because she really is fantastic. And, yeah, I'm I'm... You should send that uh, article to me. I'd love to read it. Um, yeah, I will. But that, 
That being said, though, just for time's sake, we do have to move on. Um, but definitely check that out. And also, if you've never seen the movie uh, Frida with Salma Hayek, check it out. It's it's amazing. Okay, so let's talk about our winner. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about Nicole Kidman in The Owls. So this movie takes place, or her story takes place in 1923 England um, in Richmond. And she in this movie is playing Virginia Woolf. Believe it or not, I actually looked up Virginia Woolf. <laughs> they actually glammed up Virginia Woolf <laughs> for this role. <laughs> you can believe that or not. Um, so The Hours was the original working title of Virginia Woolf's uh, Mrs. Dalloway, which is the book that connects all of the the stories because mm. all the characters are reading it. Um, Nicole Kidman's uh, Nicole Kidman loved the nose uh, because it actually disguised her from the paparazzi because at the time she was going through a divorce with Tom Cruise. Right. And Nicole Kidman is in this movie for 28 minutes and they were going to go supporting for her, but they were like, no, like you're Nicole Kidman. We're going lead. And she did. And she won the blue flowers in the film or like during Nicole Kidman's scenes was actually because Blue Flowers was Virginia Woolf's trademark. And uh, Nicole Kidman became the very first Australian actress to win a lead actress Oscar. Hmm. So I'm not really going to go into exactly like what The Hours is about because we've already discussed it on this podcast, but basically it is a very, very sad story about sad gay people (laughs) And there's very dark themes of suicide and abandoning your children and HIV. And it's just a really fun Disney film that you should watch with your kids. Um, it, it is so heavy. I've se- I was not looking forward to watching this because I was like, maybe I should just skip to the Nicole Kidman part mm. and just like watch that. Because I, I don't know if I can handle the rest of it because it's just, oh my God. And this is during the time whenever, so when I was growing up, I didn't grow up in the being gay is awesome years. I didn't grow up in the Lady Gaga years. I didn't grow up in the Glee years. I grew up in the, the only thing that we had was Rent, which is a super fun musical about AIDS. Like that's when I grew up. You know what I'm saying? So for me, like the brand was self-loathing. That was the fragrance that we wore everywhere. So for me, when this movie came out, I was like, oh, for sure. And then Brokeback came out and I was like, oh my God, like, so Basically, my only option is to kill myself. Like, that's that's all gay stories were. It was just sad, depressing, suicide, hate crime, or it would end in AIDS. It was never, ever happy. So these types of films are important for the time because then whenever we have sympathy now for LGBTQ people, it humanizes us and then allows us to move on to do films like The Kids Are All Right or Call Me By Your Name or Carol, yeah. which Carol actually has a happy ending, believe it or not. <laughs> and... It, It's hard to watch these movies as an LGBTQ person, but it's also important to watch these movies because we have to understand like where our stories were at this time in history. So Mm -hmm. that being said, Nicole Kidman in this movie, holy shit. So I love the voice. I love the accent. I always love whenever she plays like a stuffy British woman, like she did in the others. She she should have gotten an Oscar nomination for that as well, but that's another podcast. (laughs) And Um, apparently she actually did not imitate the actual tone of Virginia voices uh, of Virginia Woolf's voice because she feared that people would thought that it would be too comical. I'm assuming maybe it's like a, um, um, the French chef, um, Julia child kind of voice, kind of voice. I'm not sure exactly why, but the way that Nicole Kidman does it, it's so tastefully elegant there's like an elegant sting to like everything that she says and it's just mm, like 
this is one of my favorite Nicole Kidman performances, and I can see why they pushed her for a lead. And uh, the nose and the look and the like, they've really deglammed her or the typical Nicole Kidman look. I just, she is my favorite part of this movie. And I, um, as a person with mental health issues myself and somebody who's had a couple of nervous breakdowns myself, I really understood just kind of, I understood her character and I understood her pain and the weight of her mental illness and how she had to carry that with her. And I could feel that and I believed it. And I just love her in this movie and I love her in this role. So what did you, have you seen this before and what did you think about Nicole Kidman? Yeah, I have seen this movie before and actually I've read the book before, uh, The Hours. Oh. that is the adaptation of this film. So not Mrs. Dalloway, but the book, The Hours. Okay. And um, the the adaptation of The Hours from book to screen is actually pretty good. Um, okay. It's not one of those like, oh, you have to read the book. The book's so much better. No, the movie's pretty solid. <laughs> the only thing good. that I think the book does better than the movie is like there's there's parts where Nicole Kidman is like, or, you know, as Virginia Woolf is like going on a walk and she's like, yes, I think my character shall die, you know, and she's yeah. saying those things out loud to herself. And it's like, that's for sure in her dialogue. Okay? Yeah, she's right. not that crazy. <laughs> 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 like that is in her dialogue. But anyway, other than like literally that, um, this movie, I, I, I mean, it's a really dark movie, but I love this movie. I've also have struggled with like depression and I really understand um these characters and i love how it's people going through you know an ordinary day trying to do what they feel is an ordinary task and not mm-hmm. being able to do it and uh, mm-hmm. i feel i actually haven't read an analysis of this film but in my impression is the reason why it's set that way is because their self-worth is rooted in the task So their Mm. self-worth is rooted in the thing they're trying to accomplish that day and not being able to do it perfectly says something about them. And then their and then it's their ability and sometimes inability to be able to let that go. And I think what happens when we have our self-worth, you know, tied in like, you know, our profession or other things rather than just solely in who we are, we Mm. get caught up in moments like this. And I think it is such a beautiful film about depression in a way that um, maybe more now that people have greater, you know, bigger conversations about mental health now can capture. But at the time, it felt pretty groundbreaking and it still really holds up, I would say. Oh my God, that was so eloquently said. I feel like you need to do this podcast all the time. That was, I'm like, oh, that was moving. Um, seriously, that was that was very, very well said. Um, I One thing that I also just love the way that she plays the character is like, you can tell she's had a breakdown or two. You know what I mean? Like she just right. has that like, ugh, energy. Like I love whenever she's saying goodbye to her niece and she's like, goodbye, little girl. And she just says it and it's like, creepy kind of way oh my god ew can we talk about how she i always thought it was like her friend she like passionately made it with her sister why why i thought it was her friend miranda richardson i thought she was her friend i've i never (laughs) realized it was her sister and now because she doesn't just like give her like a quick little kiss it's like a very passionate and i read online i was like oh because 
because incest, what? And they're like, no, because Virginia Woolf longs for the life of her sister in London and she uh, she I, she says that she, I, I choose the violent jolt of the capital. I'm like, I am not convinced that Kiss was so wrong. Oh, my God. I It's her sister. I, I thought about kissing my sister. I vomited everywhere. Like, it's just never like absolutely not. That was the one thing that was so. Oh, my God. I couldn't, maybe the kiss was supposed to be the violent jolt of the capital that she's referring to. I don't, maybe it's a, maybe it's a metaphor. Yeah, I don't it know. Could be a filmmaker's over attempt to have um, symbolism. Yeah. And it just doesn't read or, or work very well. It oh, is God. jarring. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. It is jarring. Also, um, the dialogue in that sequence is about like, but don't you think I seemed better now? Yeah. Can't you tell I'm better now? Aren't I better now? But because the sister isn't like wholly convinced that she is in fact better now, I think that's kind of why her character's like, screw this, I should just go back to the city. If I'm not actually better now, if my own sister isn't convinced that I'm better living in, yeah. in Richmond, England, wherever that is, then I should just go back to the city. But yeah, it is jarring for sure. Well, when she says, you know, I'm dying in this town, I that's how I felt before I moved to Toronto. And I had my own like depressing moments and stuff like that. And um, one thing that she said that I loved is um, and just like indulge me for a second mm -hmm. here. But basically, whenever she says that, like, you know, um, only I can understand what my mental condition is like only I can understand like how I feel. You cannot tell me how I feel. Only I can understand that. When I try to explain my mental health struggles to people, one of the things that, and I don't think that they're doing this on purpose, that drives me crazy, is whenever I talk about, because um, I have OCD, but I often, my form of OCD that I suffer from is intrusive thoughts. Mm. And whenever I try to explain what that is to somebody that might not know, one thing that I don't enjoy that people do is whenever you try to say, well, an intrusive thought is, so you know whenever you're driving a car and then you think, wow, I could just, drive into oncoming traffic and kill myself. And I could just be like, we all have those thoughts. Everybody has those thoughts, okay? And what I don't like is whenever you're trying to explain where you're coming from and then somebody says, oh, I have those thoughts too. I get it. I understand. And it's like, okay, first of all, let me finish. You know what I mean? And second of all, it's like, it almost, when they say that, I understand that they're trying to demonstrate that it's empathy. They're trying to demonstrate empathy, but it's it, it almost sounds like they're belittling your experience. And it's like, what I'm trying to say is like, if you have those thoughts, that's normal. But if you have those thoughts and then it makes you so scared to the point where you would never operate a vehicle ever again because those thoughts scare you and then you can't leave your apartment because you're scared that if you leave the apartment and you even look at your car, you're going to try and kill yourself. That's what OCD and intrusive thoughts is. And I hate whenever people are like, oh, I get it. I understand. It's like, no, you don't. And whenever she was like, only I can understand my mental illness. Only I can understand how I feel. I, every single word of the way that she said it, I felt like it was something that just really resonated with me. And it was so like, yes, thank you. Because sometimes you just have to tell people to fuck off because it's like, I also have an anxiety disorder where it's like, I, it's like, people are like, oh, like, yeah, like I have anxiety too. It's like, no, there's a difference. Everybody has anxiety where that's our, that's our emergency alarm system. My emergency alarm system is broken. And it's like, it, it, it interprets everything as a threat and everything is 
you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's like when she said that and she said like, only I understand how I feel. It's like, I guess there's two things. Number one, I really got it. I understood it. I felt it. I believed it. And the second thing is anybody listening to this, if somebody is talking to you about their mental health, do not interrupt them or try to relate to them by being like, oh my God, I, I get that. I understand that feeling too. Sometimes it's like, don't do that. It's like, cause it belittles what the person is trying to explain to you. Anyway, no, I, that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> I, I, I hear that. And I think sometimes people can be um, dismissive when it feels like they can't handle it or it's beyond them, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, yes. it's not, it's almost like, it's not even like this like intentional thing. It's just people just don't even know what else to to do or say exactly and it's not it's not coming from like a negative place or they're not trying to belittle but that's how it feels and i don't think they realize that they're doing it yeah yeah okay but just for time's sake so amazing performance and nicole kidman very quickly do you have anything else that you would like to add specifically to her performance before we select our winner um, it, it, it's a beautiful performance. It's, I, I think what's so special about that training sequence, talk about an Oscar scene, um, is that you have sympathy for both parties in that argument, mm-hmm. right? Like there's like, I felt so much empathy for her, but I also felt a lot of empathy for her partner who's like desperately trying to understand her. Um, yeah, it's just, it's brilliant. Absolutely. Okay. So the time has come for us to pick who we think that the Oscar should have gone to. You are my guest. So please go ahead and select your winner first. Uh, For me, the best actress goes to... Selma Hayek for Frida. Oh my gosh. Really? Okay. Why? Controversial. Um... Okay, this is how I feel. I feel Selma Hayek was born to play Frida. And I feel she was born to play Frida the way, like, Jamie Foxx was born to play Ray Charles and Ray. Like, it's just that movie for me. And Mm. also, a little plot twist here. Nicole Kidman, as brilliant as she is in the hours, is a supporting actress and if all of this were going to go the way I feel it should have gone, Nicole Kidman would have won Supporting Actress for yes. this role. And Selma Hayek should have won Lead Actress for Frida. So sorry, Velma. Bye, Velma. Bye, girl. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Catherine Zeta-Jones. But really, that Oscar should have gone to Nicole Kidman. And this one should go to, to Selma Hayek for Frida. That's how I feel. Ooh, you actually just gave me some very interesting points and i actually am changing my mind based on what you just said okay okay so i think that the oscar should have gone to (laughs) diane lane in unfaithful (laughs) (laughs) because um it just listen i mean the fact that i watched this movie for the first time with my grandmother is just comedy to me and it's just it's nostalgic, but also just the fact that like Diane Lane like went there. I think all of the issues that I have with the movie was really more the script and also the direction. I think that Diane Lane like brought it. I think that she gave it like there are so many intimate scenes that I would be mortified to have to do on screen. And she did it and she did it in such a we shouldn't be doing this. It's so hot kind of way. It just it listen, it got my like middle aged 
like single mom, inner single mom, like juices flowing. I was so this, wet this for this is movie. Why middle-aged single moms don't get to vote for Oscars, though. Yeah. <laughs> because Nicole Kidman, I totally see why she won, but it 28 minutes totally is category fraud. And um, I would have, if she was in the supporting category, would have given it to her. So to, to Nicole so Kidman, Diane I mean, for a support is like in fifth place for me. <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy. Uh, that's funny because Salma Hayek is for sure in my fifth place <laughs> for this one. Yeah, I think Salma oh. Hayek's performance for me was like a little it was like an overall good performance, but there was no big like wow moments for me. But I just love the movie. I love the performance. But for oh. me, Diane Lane, she just. She gave me everything hard, that I wanted. So I hard disagree. <laughs> I want, you're going to the beach after this. I want to go to the beach just to like argue with you <laughs> even more about this. This is like wow. Okay, well I hope I you get a lot of negative <laughs> feedback on this. <laughs> well, I wonder. I wonder if I'm going to get any messages about this one. Yeah, they'll be like, mm, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, this has been a fantastic episode. I'm so excited for you guys. This is, this was, this is one of my favorite episodes I've done in a while. So Catherine Anker, where can people find you on social media? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at it's me underscore Catherine spelled C-A-T-H-R-Y-N. Feel free to just send me any Diane Lane gif at any point <laughs> throughout the day or night <laughs> um, and, and troll me with that. This is absolutely wild. That's so funny. And don't forget to check out um, Catherine's debut album, I'm Your Number One Dad, available wherever you can get music. Okay, thank you so much, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.